Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. I invite you to turn in the Bible that you have to John. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying together verses 23 to 42 into the chapter of John 19. So there John continues um, in verse 23. Jesus at this point, if you'll remember from a week ago, he has been crucified. It says, verse 23, John writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, They cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may 
believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So, let's pray. <coughs> Lord, these are great words. We praise you for them. What a gift to us. What a gift to the world. We ask now, Lord, uh, that you would take your word, you would pour out your spirit, you would help us. Help us to step through this passage, help us to make it all the way through and along the way. Oh, please give us rest in Christ. Don't let a soul be able to come in here and sit under the preaching of Christ and Him crucified and leave without supernatural eternal peace in their souls. That they have been reconciled to God. That they have come upon the fountain of life and been able to drink fully and freely to their salvation or just to their joy that they have been saved. We ask this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. When you go through a book of the Bible over a couple of years, as we've done with the Gospel of John, you can easily lose sight of the goal, purpose of the book, what the author is after. And for John, as for every biblical author, I think ultimately that's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the entrusting of our sinful souls to a real person who came into this very real world and did real things to a real and utterly soul-saving effect. Or, as John will put it in a couple of weeks for us, in this gospel, it's that quote, we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in his name. So you see, John assumes in that, he assumes that in ourselves and in of ourselves, we are lifeless. We are without life. He asserts that we're dead. Not physically dead yet, of course, but that we are spiritually dead. We come into the world spiritually dead. We come into the world enslaved to sin. We are inclined to disobedience. We're alive to the lie that God cannot be trusted. We come in as disciples of the devil, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We're just storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Eternal life is something that is foreign to us. 
Living to God is something that is alien to us. And all of that, however, is actually what makes the grace of God in Jesus so magnificent and melting. Though we deserve to die the sinner's death, God sent his son to die it for us. That we may yet live with God forever, simply through faith in the Redeemer's blood. His death affords us life. And that is our text today. Its main concern is that we all truly believe in the testimony of God concerning Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It means to draw us in to that. And if we're thirsty for life, if we're thirsty for life, if we're thirsty to live, to truly live, to live as heirs of God's grace, His salvation, you and I will not be able to be kept back from this fountain of life. 350 years ago, John Flavel, a Puritan, he gave 42 sermons and about 561 small type pages to the cross of Christ. I'd say it's one of the greater Christian books we have. And his title for it was a display of Christ in his essential and mediatorial glory. Or more simply, the fountain of life. The fountain of life. And as that is what it is, and we have free access to that fountain, nothing can benefit us more than to come to this fountain and just drink to our soul's relief and to our heart's content. So, I want you to hear first as we come to our text now, that the crucified Jesus is the Bible's Christ. The crucified Jesus is the Bible's Christ. The soldiers here have crucified him. Look in verse 23. His cross work has begun. And while he suffers the penalty for our sins, we just need to see the awful depravity of men. How as a matter of normal course, we can nail a man to a tree one moment. Nail him to a tree, and in the next moment, easy as pie, turn our hearts while his is bleeding out to bartering, to gambling for his clothes as if he were hardly a man at all. This only proves what kind of beasts we are because of sin, what kind of beasts we can be by nature. And so they divide what can be divided, and then they come to the real place. It's this seamless tunic which carried such value that the last thing they wanted to do was harm it, right? Jesus, we can torment and torture. Jesus' tunic, oh, we can't damage that. That is valuable. That needs to be spared at all costs. And so to keep that thing intact and gain it for themselves, they cast lots for it. They roll the dice. May this fantasy thing called chance or luck may it ever be on our side. And I say fantasy thing because in verse 24, John tells us this was to fulfill the Scripture. Psalm 22, verse 18, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. And John then makes the fulfilling of God's word to be the governor of the soldier's actions. 
See that? So the soldiers did these things. So just note that. They did these awful things. The sin was theirs. They committed responsible and condemnable action. And yet, unbeknownst to them, they were also fulfilling, at the same time, the word of God. At the same time, they're doing what God had ordained and revealed to be done to the Christ. So these things are always hard for us to reconcile, and yet we find them in the Bible. The Bible holds them together on every single page. Our responsibility, God's sovereignty. But that's where I want to take our minds just now, just to the Bible, and to its testimony about Christ and to his saving work. Of course, we don't have time to cover the, the full gamut of it here, but it ought to be incredible to us how clear the death of Christ is in the Bible. I really mean the, the Old Testament scriptures. In authoring the scriptures, God left nothing to so-called chance, nothing to guesswork, nothing to vague obscurity, just the opposite. Right? What's one of the most random things that a person can do if not roll the dice, cast a lot? And yet, go read Proverbs 16.33, that's not random at all. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's entirely governed by God. And so here they are doing what they would normally do on a really busy Friday afternoon. They have a few guys to crucify. Only this time, in doing their busyness, they bring to pass a word from God from a thousand years prior. So, just feel the detail in God's presentation in Scripture of Christ crucified. It's not just the doctrine that God gives and say in Isaiah 53, which Jonathan read for us in the call to worship, it's the detail that he gives in a Psalm 22, verse 18. It says right there, you can go look at it. Some wretched fellows are going to divide what they can of his garments and cast lots for what they can't divide of his garments. That is going to happen to the Messiah as part of his suffering for his people. And in like manner, the rest of our text is then filled with quotes and allusions of Scripture coming to pass in the death of Jesus. It's amazing. He says, I thirst to fulfill Psalm 69, verse 21. His legs are not broken to fulfill Exodus 12, 46 and a couple other places. His side is pierced to fulfill Zechariah 12, verse 10. He's buried, he's buried in, a, in a rich man's grave to fulfill Isaiah 53, 9. And all that's happening on top of Psalm 22, 18. And that's really but a, a few of the reference points that say, this man right here on the cross, this is the Christ of God. This is the Bible's Christ. And to go a step clearer, that's not just to say that the Bible means to create this expectancy that the Christ would be crucified, but that the Bible means to create this certainty, this absolute certainty that the crucified Jesus is that Christ. This man here, crucified between two criminals, is the eternal Christ of God. God doesn't want us to miss that. Do you know what the references, what they reference? 
you go and look at them, they reach as far back as Moses in Exodus. And they come as near to Christ as Zechariah a few hundred years before him. And all in all, that's about a thousand years of time. So God has been preparing the world for Christ crucified for a long, long time. In fact, in fact, John would say God's been preaching Christ crucified from the dawn of time. Do you remember how John begins? In the beginning was the word. So dear ones, it should not amaze us that the word would speak in great detail about the crucifixion of the word. Or that his being crucified would lead to revelation shining in its most brilliant radiance. That he would sum up the word of God and that the word of God would sound off about him right here. This crucified Jesus is the Bible's Christ. He is the only Christ. And oh, that these soldiers could see it. Oh, that you, friend, might be able to see it. How from bartering for his clothes to his last breaths, to what does and does not happen to his body, to his burial, from Moses to Zechariah to his own words, this man is the only mediator between God and men. The Bible fashions a Christ that all our misconceptions of him prove humanly unfathomable. This is God's Christ. So, these soldiers see nothing more than a dying criminal to mock, to spit on, to slap around, and to rape. They make sport of his clothes. And in doing so, how they are the ones who are actually exposed. They are the ones that are made naked before the eyes of God. And you and I with them making everything about nothing eternal. They're happy to have his tunic for their bodies while leaving their souls exposed to the elements of justice. The material is all that matters. Their souls do not matter. They have no mind to their souls. Who cares that now Naked as he is, Jesus is clothed in our sins. That he might clothe the sinner in his obedience and grace. It is necessary, friend, for us to be exposed at the cross. You see, it's in us to cover up. You go back to Genesis 3, what's the first thing they want to do? in us to cover up only in ways that cannot actually cover us. That cannot shelter us from the wrath of God that is due to us. But just where, just where you then stand exposed, the sinner, right there, God says, you will find a soul-clothing Savior. 
crucified Jesus is the Bible's Christ. And he is his family's bond. You see that in the text. So opposite the soldiers now, we have four women. Four soldiers, four women, including his mom Mary and the beloved disciple. And they're all standing, verse 25, at the cross. And in verse 26, from the cross, Jesus sets his eyes on his mother. And on this disciple, what a moving scene this is. Hard to fathom a good mother's grief at the loss like this of such a son as this. She'd been told earlier in his life that a sword would pierce through her own soul. Surely this is it. She'd received him from the Holy Spirit (laughs) by word of an angel to the anthems of heavenly hosts with the grandest and godliest of boasts. My little Johnny, practically perfect as he is, made it into rabbinical school. How about your boy, Mary? Well, he's the sinless son of God and savior of the world, including sinners like you and me. One wonders if that's somewhere present amid her piercing grief here. Here, here is that glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace. We don't know. What we do know is that in his anguish, which is infinitely worse than her anguish, his mind and heart are clear as day. At the same time, think on this, at the same time that he's bearing the penalty for her sins, bearing the penalty for John's sins, knowing the full depths now of the worst about them and of the judgment of God against them, while he endures that for them, when he may, we, may, we may excuse him for just a little bit of bitterness or maybe a little bit of self-concern. Nothing but the love of Christ radiates from that tree. He's in the throes of putting away their everlasting hells. And still, he's concerned for their day-to-day on earth. Jesus is pure love. He is pure love. He is divine self-sacrifice. He's achieving their eternal salvation, and he's like, is there anything else I can do for you? Ah, yes, you need a son to care after you. And you need a mom to mother you. You might say, don't they already have those things? Probably. So the point is, Jesus wants a certain kind of family upon his departure. His brothers, remember, in John 7, they are not yet believers. 
They will be, but they're not yet. But John is, and Mary is, and so Jesus, never too busy, apparently, to love practically and perfectly, he now pairs the two of them together. And there, right there, you and I, we have the seed of the kind of family that we're supposed to be. Here's a new family established by the word of Christ, stayed boldly at the cross of Christ, bonded together in the love of Christ. So Christian, Jesus knows that we need each other. Yes, of course, we need him more than anything. They needed what he was doing on the cross more than anything, but they also needed what he spoke to them from that cross. Believer, you need a believer. You need a family. As a matter of discipleship, we need a family that stays with Jesus through thick and thin. We need a family that lives on his death. We need a family that cares as undefiled religion would have it after orphans and widows, spiritual or otherwise. We need a family that emblematic of a new birth loves one another earnestly from a pure heart. We need a family that's bonded at the cross. If we stayed here as we ought, we would know a love that holds all together. If we were stayed here, we would see, we would find an inseparable love. All our pettiness is owing almost strictly to distance from so great a love and care as we find in Jesus at the cross. We little know the kind of care he has for us, knowing the worst about us, and still loving us, dying for us, ministering to us while dying for us. How can we be stayed there and not be moved to repentance over the fact of our childish unsteadiness with one another? Is his love not solid ground enough? If I could just portal us, because I've been watching way too many Marvel movies and stuff, I just like portal us to this scene. Would we ever break up? Would we ever find reason enough to be relationally embittered? Would we be able to stay petty and self-exalting and loveless if we stayed at the cross? Saw him. And yet here we are in the word of God at the cross. We're there. So we need to let those things die. And let love for one another spring up and flower and multiply through each one of us and throughout our church. But maybe your concern is a little bit different. Maybe you've had those seasons in your life you think, see what I've done to him. See how I've driven the nails. Surely now he's leaving me. And he says, never. (laughs) 
You see, he says to these who also have their hand in his present sufferings, even now in the extremities of what I'm suffering for you, I'm loving you. I'm doing my utmost for you. And not one task is so big like suffering your health. Not one task is so big that I overlook another as you have me. When we're stayed at the cross, what do we see? What do we hear? Is it not his unimpeded concern for us? Whatever else is going on, is it not the assurances that he is mindful of us always? Is it not the import from the greater to the lesser? As I bear this cross for you, what else is there that I will not do for you so long as that thing is good for you? The crucified Jesus is the Bible's Christ, and the Bible's Christ is his family's bond. Now then we come to it. We come to it. His finishing death is the fountain of life. After this, John tells us that Jesus, verse 28, has another word to fulfill. Again, let's just, let's just be amazed. Let's just be amazed at what all was in his mind, even now, on the far side of our everlasting condemnation. Be amazed at his awareness, his cognizance. There was yet a single idea of Scripture to fulfill. <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes I am hard-pressed on my best days to open the Bible. To read a line of Scripture. But here is Jesus, having suffered an innumerable multitude of everlasting hells and what is before him. What is on his mind? What is foremost in his heart? The Bible. <laughs> Fulfilling the scripture. Bringing every single line to pass in himself. How much do you suppose did Jesus value the word of God? And how much do you and I? If he is spitting scripture on the cross at this point of his sufferings, is there ever a time that we should not bear him? Is there ever a time that we cannot? So he says in our text, I thirst. It's an allusion, as I said, to Psalm 69, verse 21. To be clear, he's not saying it just to say it, just to show further that he is the word. That's not what's going on here. No, he's really and truly thirsty. Jesus is thirstier than any person has ever been. There's never been a marathon run like the marathon that he has now run. You say, well, what about the others who were crucified right beside him? Did they not run the same marathon as him? No, they did not. There's no question that crucifixion alone would major in the extremes of dehydration to say nothing of everything that preceded the cross for Jesus, Gethsemane, where he's like dropping blood, sweating blood. Think dehydration, okay? 
That's Gethsemane. That's where it really kind of begins there. Then there's scourging. Then there's beatings. Then there's carrying that part of his cross to the place atop Golgotha. So Jesus was thirsty. But we know, don't we, that his, his thirst preaches still something more. There's a race that he has run that the others crucified beside him never would or could. His cross is distinct from theirs and all others. And for the joy that was set before him, he has now endured it all the way. (laughs) On his cross, in the span of a few hours, Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice to God for our sins. God imputed, imputed, assigned our sins to him and then prosecuted them as us, condemned him as if he were the chief of sinners because really he was in that moment. As the word said he would, Jesus became a trillion transgressors at once. And all our countless evils, all our sins, all our failures to love and glorify God as we're supposed to, his sinless soul was baptized in that. Every bit of him was soaked and stained with it. And just there, just there, this is where it gets amazing. He welcomed. He welcomed the whole of the infinite justice of God that was against us because of sin. He was accursed by God as us on the cross. He was condemned in our place. He turned up that blistering cup of God's wrath and that drink, what he drank from that cup is nothing but a God-forsaken desert. It does not quench thirst for the soul. It produces thirst to no end. It steals away every grace, every joy, every comfort forever. And at the same time, it endlessly supplies every due misery unassailable justice, a fire, Jesus says, that cannot be quenched. And so a weeping and a gnashing of teeth with no dawn on the horizon, no new day. It's just pure judgment without an ounce of mercy or hope. It's hell. It's torment. It's punishment. It's death. And it's everlasting. which makes it all the more remarkable that Jesus, clearing his throat by that sip of sour wine, now declares the most lovely and sweeping words that any person ever uttered on the face of the earth. It is finished. That's incredible. It is finished. 
How, I ask, is that possible? No man can finish off such a penalty as all that, much less in a single afternoon. Amen and amen. But friends, the God-man can do it. He has done it. Let's just dwell on this thing. If you would be saved from your sins, I don't, I've talked to folks who, who have not yet believed. Sometimes I hear, I'm just too sinful. His grace is not enough. Wrong. Wrong. If you would be saved from your sins, you absolutely can be. You say, Okay, what must I do to be saved? The work of God, Jesus said, remember John chapter 6, is to believe in the one God sent to do precisely what we, given eternity, never could. And here Jesus says, he's done it. He's completed his task. He's achieved salvation. It is finished. So what grace God promised to sinners in the Bible, Jesus has procured it. Now, what the word preached of redemption, Jesus has now fulfilled that. What the law prefigured in pointing us to this sin-atoning lamb, Jesus has obeyed it and suffered it and exactly embodied it for us. What the holy justice of God required for the eternal salvation of sinners, Jesus undertook that, he underwent that, and he has finished that. Everything, everything that Messiah was to be and do by the word of God, Jesus is and did and will do. And again here, he and he alone has at least satisfied, he has satisfied the justice of God that was against us. He has paid away the penalty of all our sins. He has exhausted the condemnation that was due to you and me. And in its place, he has procured, he has bought full pardon, justification, grace, peace, and life from God. This is incredible to think about. But Jesus made it he made it to the other side of our hells. If we were to suffer that, we never would. It's eternal. Jesus made it to the other side so that there is nothing of that at all left for the believer to ever experience. There is only salvation and glory. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Zero. And so what a notice from Christ on his cross. It's as one said, if Christ was punished for my sins, I can never be punished for them. His work is sufficient. As John Flavel mentioned at the beginning, he put it this way, nothing can be added to make the work of Christ 
more apt and able to procure our salvation than it already is. Do you just feel the, the glory in that fact? It is finished. It's done. Well, John's not done. He wants us to feel it more. Okay? So you see what Jesus does next? He dies for us. A lot of times we just lump all that together. He dies for us. Oh, how one will scarcely die for a righteous person. And only perhaps will someone die for a good person. But God demonstrates. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ, right here in our text, died for us. So, having suffered our hells, he goes on to taste our deaths. That's not his death. You understand that? This is not his death that he's dying. It's yours. And it's mine. You want to see your death and burial as the condemned sinner that you used to be? That's what's in this passage. Here it is. If you're a Christian, this is not the death that you're going to die. Though it is the death you would have died had Christ not died it for you. So just marvel at how he does it. John says, he bowed his head and what? Gave up. Gave up his spirit. Do you hear it? His life was not taken from him by his enemies. Neither did his cross slowly steal his life away. Jesus gave up his spirit. Of his own accord, he laid down his life. That's why the Father loves him. You remember that? John chapter 10. The sovereign over death submitted to death to destroy death. And in the process, deliver us from the death we deserve to die. He delivered all who believe from death in the grip of sin and under the judgment of God. And John wants that reality to grip us, that Jesus experienced our death, that we might have his life. So you see verse 31. The Jews go to Pilate to speed up the death of the crucified. Right? Break the legs of cross bearers. Get them down. We do have a holy day to keep. And we need to go. And we need to get ready for that holy day after all. Friend, do not be like that. Don't be like those who can see the cross and be unmoved by it. Don't be like those who can wish to hurry his utter removal from their view. Get him out of my sight. Only to get home with a conscience of concrete. Thinking all is good and well and pious with me. Don't be like those who in the name of worship want to be rid of the one who can save and satisfy their souls. Talk about your dead worship. But for our living worship, see how God has orchestrated things here. When the soldiers come to break their legs, 
they find that Jesus has already died. And to verify it for the world that he has died, one of them, to be sure, takes a spear and then pierces him in his side. And when he pierces him in his side, there's no movement. Just think about it. God has put on flesh. He's dead. There's no revival. No life. No breath. It's incredible. So his legs aren't broken. But his side is pierced. And Jesus, now dead, though dead, continues to speak his grace. At once the eyewitness says, out of his side, verse 34, came blood and water and the passing, verses 36 and 37, of two more prophecies, that not one of his bones would be broken, but that his side would be pierced. And beloved, as you go to those texts, you'll find them referring ultimately to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In fact, if you go to Zechariah, you're going to find that this dead man here is no one less than God. This is God in the flesh, bleeding out, gushing water, supplying the world that would have it with cover from the judgment of God and cleansing from the penalty and power of sin. That's what Jimmy read before we got going here. So here, Zechariah says, here is the fountain of life in the finishing death of Jesus Christ. John just can't contain himself. He cannot contain himself. He calls them. In verse 35, he calls on all the peoples. <laughs> Join the company of believers. He presses. I saw this. I'm telling you, it's true. It's all true. I know it's true. Here it is. Not fantasy, but history. Not a lie but truth. Not to be heard with the ears only and then bypassed, but believed and embraced. So believe. Even as we also have, is what he says. And that also is notable. John is not writing these things in some idealistic ivory tower, but after decades, decades now, of all the pleasures and all the persecutions that preaching the cross includes. Still, like he's about to be exiled on Patmos, this guy writing this, several decades later, still he preaches nothing else but Christ and him crucified. And there's nothing more to preach than Christ and him crucified. Jesus died for our sins to give us eternal life with God, believe. And believe truly. It is certainly a burden of this gospel, remember this, not that we make decisions for Jesus, but that we become true disciples of Jesus. And that as a mark 
of that. Saving faith will not fear public identification with him. So, we close with his glorious burial and our glorious burial. This is my favorite part of the gospel, I think. It thrills the soul, doesn't it? To see in verses 38 and 40 to 42, Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the Sanhedrin, and who else? Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, standing opposite their contemporaries. Not to discard Jesus to the trash heap, but to honor him and to anoint him and to bury him, as Isaiah said, in a rich man's grave. It was Joseph. But John, you see, tells us they both had their bouts of secrecy, fear. They were afraid. Afraid of what others might think of them. Afraid of losing their position, their status. Afraid of forfeiting the life they formerly enjoyed. Afraid of being seen and perhaps misconstrued as a believer, a disciple of Jesus. Friend, is that you? Are you following Jesus, but at a distance? Are you trying to keep up appearances in the world? Don't, don't want to be a fool for Christ. You're not wanting to take up your cross and follow him. May God pour out his spirit of grace upon us in this so that we might see, even still, his worthiness of that. These men saw it. Just think now. They saw Jesus crucified. They go and get him off the cross. They saw Jesus crucified. They saw him accursed by God. They saw him dying, and they saw him dead. They saw the darkness. And then they stepped out of their darkness and into the light with Jesus. Because in all of that, they also at the same time came to see, he has done that for me. Do you think? Nicodemus, at least, saw Jesus crucified and saw, recalled by the light of God's grace as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. And what Jesus said to him? This is what he said to Nicodemus back in John 3. Ah, so he's looking at Jesus. He's on the cross. Maybe, maybe, probably so. In his mind, in his heart, he's thinking, I remember what he said. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Oh. I think that's what's going on for Nicodemus. I believe that man was born again. Oh, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I think he was. I believe his old man was buried. And here is that new man. It's that new life growing out and going public at 
the cross. At the cross, when it's the worst. <laughs> so if, if you would ever live to God, if you would ever walk with Jesus Christ, you must die. You must be buried with Him. What I mean is you must die to yourself and you must die to sin and you've got to die to the opinions of the world. Christ and all He is and being His must be more to you He is that now to these two men, even when on the face of it he is dead and buried. Still, they see him. And seeing him, they see the king. They see the Bible's Christ. They see their very own Savior. And that's as he is there on the cross. Just wait, just wait, God knows, till early Sunday morning. He's going to rise. I know you know that. But just here, these men saw the fountain of life, as did a few others. Would you live, friend? Would you live? Come and drink. Believe. Live and rest your soul upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you so much for what you have done for us. I pray if there's a soul in the room still unsheltered by the grace, the blood of Christ, change that right now. Pour out saving grace. Let not a person leave without becoming one of your own. And I pray for every believer that there would be now a revival, a renewal of peace and joy in Christ welling up within our hearts. To your glory. In Jesus' name.